Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk, ICRT's weekly interview segment, bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we are kicking off a new interview series for Taiwan Talk. Uh, as we've discussed before on the show, Taipei Times features writer Han Chung is bringing to light important moments in Taiwan's history with his ongoing column, Taiwan in Time. Uh, each Sunday, he takes on one event that occurred during the following calendar week. Uh, he explains what happened, why it happened, and why it's still relevant. Uh, so here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to set aside one episode a month of Taiwan Talk for this recurring segment to highlight his work and Taiwan's history. Today, we're going to be looking at Han's June articles, uh, the four landing between June 5th and June 26th. Uh, these are all covering events that happened in Taiwan on some June way back when, uh, maybe 20 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, maybe a couple hundred years ago. We've got a broad range here. So four weeks, four articles, quite a lot to get to. So let's get to it. All right, Han Chung, uh, good to have you back on the show. Welcome back to Taiwan Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're going to be going through uh, four of your articles this week that are uh, each looking at, you know, for di very different episodes in Taiwan's history. Uh, and we're going to be going into one of them in particular depth because you put quite a lot of work into it. So we're going to be taking a very uh, thorough look at it. Uh, but we're going to start off just kind of running through uh, the top three just to give our listeners a sense of the body of work that you have put together in this past month or so. Uh, so first up, let's go to the uh, beginning of the month. The first one that you wrote, uh, which is titled A Lifelong Desire to Learn, uh, and in this article, you're kind of exploring the life uh, of a woman named Tai Ashin, uh, who just happens to be Taiwan's first female doctor. Um, now, interestingly here, uh, most people in Taiwan probably would never have known about her uh, if it wasn't for uh, a popular TV series that came out about a decade ago. Yeah, that's correct. Like uh, in 2005, they made uh, this TV show based on... Um this novel that was made and uh, written by Dong Fang Bai in 1990. And uh, that's how a lot of people got to know about her. But the it wasn't based, it was based on her, but it wasn't her. So, mm. like, I don't know how many people knew that it was based on a real person. Mm -hmm. And because uh, she had a different name in the um, TV series. And um, so I don't know how much of the historicity was, like, mm. emphasized in the TV show. Right. So we are talking about uh, a woman that was born 90 years ago uh, this month, uh, and she really had to be pretty scrappy to get the medical education that she got. Uh, some of it was uh, in Taiwan, and it was very unusual for a woman to get as much education as she did at the time. Uh, she got some of it uh, in Japan as well. So uh, she really went through a lot to... Uh, be able to get the the medical know-how that she got. Yeah, she did. She did. Um, it helped that her her family was uh, baptized by George Leslie McKay, so they had more liberal views on girls going to school. But that that wasn't a normal like a uh, typical thing back then. And yeah, just the fact that she even made it overseas to Japan as the first Taiwanese to study at uh, Tokyo Medical College was um pretty impressive and even when i've i wrote that even when she had to come back to taiwan due to medical problems uh, she um, requests to sit in at a male medical college becoming the first 
female co-ed uh, higher education student ever in Taiwan. Mm. And, uh, you know, even though probably most people uh, don't remember her too well, and then, you know, there's also the fact that she spent most of her later life uh, in North America and Canada, um, because, you know, obviously there was a lot of uh, strife in Asia and Taiwan in particular. Uh, so she kind of fled, went to North America. Um, there, there is a little bit of a Taiwan legacy there in that she opened uh, a clinic that uh, trained midwives. Yeah, she first opened her, uh, her clinic in uh, early June in 1926 in Taichung, and then mm -hmm. uh, also a school to train midwives. So, mm. yeah, and it, it was said like more than half of the babies in Taichung were delivered by people trained by her. Mm. Yeah. All right. So once again, that is uh, the June 5th article of Taiwan in Time. Uh, let's move on to uh, the June 19th article. This one's titled, uh, As the Last Resistance Fell. Uh, and this is looking at the very uh, short-lived Republic of Formosa and one of the key figures that uh, I think you're arguing perhaps got a, a little bit too much credit for its failed defense. Yeah, yeah. So... Um when the Japanese, when the Qing Dynasty signed Taiwan over to Japan, um, the people of Taiwan didn't want to just go down that quietly. So they kind of declared like uh, an independent Republic of Formosa and tried to organize like a resistance against the Japanese. But so, but the funny thing was, all three of the major commanders like ran away, like in the face of defeat. Right. including this guy. So yeah. I'm, I'm kind of looking at um, how he was framed at the, as this like anti-Japanese, like hero of Taiwan, mm -hmm. hero of the Chinese people. Like he was, um, there were like legends about him in China because there mm -hmm. was a lot of like anti-Japanese sentiment there. Mm -hmm. um, but even before the last stronghold of Tainan fell, like, he also ran away to China, so right, and yeah, so it kind of looks at that, and so basically, when the Japanese arrived, they kind of they started in Geelong, they took Geelong, mm -hmm. then they took Taipei, uh, and in a way, really, the battle was over once Taipei was taken. There's not much that could have happened, uh, but uh, some were expecting uh, the guy in question. We're talking about Liu Yongfu. Uh, to protect Tainan. That's kind of where he fled back to. But he left Taiwan and went to China before the advancing Japanese forces even came to Tainan. Uh, and I guess he gets the most credit because he was, of the three uh, leaders that you were talking about, he was the last one to retreat, uh, even though he never really engaged like he was supposed to. Yeah, that's correct. Like the first guy, uh, Tang Jing-sung, he was the president of the republic. He fled after Ji Long fell. And then mm -hmm. the second guy, the vice president, Chou Fengjia, he tried to uh, defend Taipei. But when Taipei fell, he fled to China. And, mm -hmm. then, uh, and then after that, it was a lot of like local resistance by mm -hmm. like uh, civilian militias. And, uh, but the Japanese kept pushing south towards. And Liu Yongfu was stationed in around Kaohsiung. And then... Um, the people of Tainan invited him and swore him in as this kind of second president of mm. the Republic of Formosa. Historians dis dispute whether that actually happened, but because mm. um, there's a, I guess there's a difficulty here, kind of separating the fact from the fiction. Yeah, yeah, because there's a, a lot of like legends about him and kind of swirling around. Yeah, yeah. So some say he refused to swear in as president, but anyways, he decided he he agreed to 
lead the resistance. Mm. But it was really like the local militias and the other government troops that were fighting until they got to around Zhanghua, and then that's mm-hmm. when his troops kind of um, went into action. But mm. then after that, they they lost that big battle, Baguashan, and then. It was kind of like the Japanese were. The next step was Tainan, and mm. then as they advanced, like he, right. two days before they entered Tainan, he like got on a ship and fled to China. So mm. now, okay, so you know this is one historical figure that uh, has m- maybe been puffed up to a uh, larger than the reality of the situation. Um, but what w- what would you say is the importance? Just looking at the broader. Uh, you know, uh, event itself, the Republic of Formosa, the uh, loss of Taiwan to Japan. Uh, What do you think is the uh, significance of that uh, event in the modern Taiwanese consciousness? When, you know, people today kind of look back on Taiwan history, uh, how how is that really relevant to the way people think about history now? I think a lot of it is like, since this republic was so Mm short-lived, and uh, so, but a lot of people... I don't know if a lot of people know about that there was actually resistance or like what what actually happened when mm-hmm. uh cuz we just learned that the Qing dynasty ceded Taiwan to Japan but like what really happened during that time and um yeah it was a lot of people actually died in that like resisting the Japanese and mm. like they they did not want to accept that fate so mm. I thought that was interesting and also about like a lot of there's a lot of, you know, people talk about Taiwanese independence and there was like this Republic of Formosa back then, but mm. it wasn't really, um, it was more of like a government kind of mm-hmm. plan to like kind of keep Taiwan out of, um, out of Japan, Japan most but like how much did they really want independence for Taiwan? Like that, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's uh, up for debate a little yeah, bit. Yeah, for yeah. debate, yeah. yeah. All right, so uh, a, a very interesting and probably uh, under-discussed moment in Taiwan's history. Uh, we're going to go to your third article that we'll be discussing for today. This one's uh, Orphans of a Twisted History. Uh, you released that on June 26th. This kind of picks up on a, a, a similar theme just in terms of uh, sort of the contested nationalities and contested identities that we find in Taiwan. Uh, and uh, you're talking here about the works, the lives and works of uh, Wu Zhou who is uh, uh, a novelist that was writing at a very difficult time to be a novelist in Taiwan's history. Uh, during, uh, you know, half of his life was during the Japanese occupation. Half of his life was uh, under the uh, KMT uh, regime. Uh, and, and some of his most famous works were written during World War II. Yeah, yeah. This guy, this guy is really interesting because, um, yeah, he was born uh, under, you know, when Jap- Japan first kind of took over Taiwan. And then... Uh, he had a pretty privileged background, so he was able to go to college and um, worked as a teacher. But then he was there was a lot of conflict. Um, he, he felt really discriminated by the Japanese as a Taiwanese, so he was fed up with that. He went to China, and then he mm. found that people in China saw him as saw Taiwanese people as Japanese spies, and they distrusted him and. At that time, like China was pretty much like overrun by the Japanese as well, mm. so he coined the term like orphans of Asia mm. um, 
for the Taiwanese people. They were not the Han Chinese, they, but they weren't accepted by China, and they were discriminated by Japan. So that came, became the basis of his novel that he wrote during World War Two, mm-hmm. and uh, under he had to secretly write it, mm-hmm. and, and uh, he had to hit, hide the manuscripts and disperse them into the countryside. And uh, yeah, if caught, he would be probably sentenced to death for treason. So, mm. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Dis- discriminated at home for uh, being Taiwanese under a Japanese uh, regime, then mistrusted in uh, China for being, you know, technically a Japanese national at the time. Uh, and uh, I guess the main significance of the work that he did release is kind of giving a much more vivid and honest portrait of Taiwan under Japanese colonial rule than we're probably going to find anywhere else. Yeah, that's correct. Like, in, in even in his introduction to the book, he talks about uh, how much... Um, he talks about the historical accuracy of his novel, even though it's all fictional events. But uh, he said, before history repeats itself, he wanted to provide like a context of how things were, like really were back then, for both for future Japanese and future Taiwanese to read. So, uh, mm. so that 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 was his purpose of writing it. So that's why a lot of people study that his novel to look at what Taiwanese society was like mm. back then. And after the war, because he kept writing. Mm. All right. Well, we were talking there about Wu Zhou He was born 116 years ago uh, this June. All right. Now we are going to turn our attention to uh, the article that you wrote on June 12th, uh, The Well of Miracles. Uh, and th- we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive right here because uh, you, you you did a little bit of Nancy Drew work here and kind of really uh, tried to ho- separate the fact from the fiction. Uh, now, in this case, this is kind of your Dragon Boat Festival article. Uh, and here you took on uh, one of the legends that has sprung up in Taiwan uh, associated with the Dragon Boat Festival. Uh, and it's also associated with one of uh, Taiwan's most important historical figures going all the way back to the 17th century. Uh, when I read about him when I was studying Taiwan history uh, in, in, in English language books, you might see his name written as Koshinga, something with an X like that. Uh, but in Chinese, his name is? Uh, his name is Zheng Chenggong. Mm, and uh, why is he important to uh, Taiwanese history? He was considered the person, an army who like uh, drove the Dutch out of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So uh, back then, yeah, he invaded uh, Tainan and then kind of sent the Dutch packing. And then he intended to use Taiwan as a base to um, revive the Ming Dynasty. Mm. Yeah, uh, we've heard that before. <laughs> yep. So yeah, he tried to do that, and then but. That never really happened, but he established like a kingdom in Taiwan, and it was considered like the first kind of Han Chinese um, mm. rule or kingdom in Taiwan. And then, but um, yeah, he never made it. And the Qing Dynasty, his kingdom continued for like I think two more generations, and mm. then it was annexed by the Qing Dynasty. Right. So uh, the legend that you bring up in your article uh, comes towards the end of his life, uh, and it involves a well and a sword. Yeah, yeah. So this legend involves, there's this well in Dajia, like north of Taichung. And uh, so every noon at Duanwujie, or Dragon Boat Festival, people go there and line up to get water from the well, which is supposed to cure all kinds of diseases and won't go bad for a whole year. 
So mm-hmm. you can store it. You can drink it. that water <laughs> for a whole year. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I was curious. I was looking at um, unusual dragon boat festival traditions because mm-hmm. we all know about the dragon boats. We know about the zongzi and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But I was like, there's there must be something else that people do. So I looked into that. And so the legend has it that this Zhen Gong, so he was with this army. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of versions of the legend, but this is the common one on the official Daja website. Oh, that. okay. So the, yeah. the official legend. There yeah, we the go. the government website. But, <laughs> so he was uh, stranded. He was fighting these aborigines in that, um, in that area, and they were stranded on this mountain, and mm-hmm. uh, the aboriginals like cut off their water sources, so mm-hmm. they were about to die of thirst, and... Zhen Chenggong prayed to the heavens and stabbed his sword into the ground and mm. water came out huh. and that saved their life. So, um, Just opened up the tap. Yep. And it said that they made a well there and then the sword stayed in there and then that kind of became like an auspicious well because it was like uh, related to his name, mm. yeah, and uh, wasn't wasn't part of the legend that if you looked in the sword never left, and if you looked into the well, you could find it or something like that. Yeah, I think it would like rise up uh, every day on Dragon Boat Festival. Uh, oh, oh because the, the event supposedly happened around Dragon Boat Festival, like either a day before or the day of. Mm. So that's why um, right. that's observed during that time, and it's also said that people tried to take the sword out of the well and they could never succeed. Like, it would just stay in the well. Okay. It's a a very King Arthur, Lady of the Lake kind of situation. Uh, Now, let's get to the Nancy Drew work that you put into this. Uh, So you deduced uh, that this is not likely to have happened. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So (laughs) I I started... Just to put a damper on a good story for (laughs) everybody. Yeah, so uh, I started looking into the kind of accuracy of this legend. Just uh, just wanted to do some detective work and mm-hmm. see, like, what's the likelihood of Zhen Chenggong actually being there? Because from what I know, his kingdom was centered around Tainan. And mm-hmm. it at most, like, probably the northern border was, like, Zhanghua or something. So what, what was he doing in Dajia, which is mm-hmm. just south of Miaoli. So it's mm-hmm. it's pretty far up north. So I started looking into it, and I mean, part of it, parts of it do make sense, because uh, mm-hmm. after, uh, during Zheng's uh, fight against the Dutch and after, they were actually facing a lot of food shortages. So he decided to send his troops north and south to, like, establish farmland. Mm-hmm. And According to some like historical sources, these farms actually stretched as far as um, like Taoyuan. So, mm-hmm. so, so it's possible. So that area makes sense now, mm-hmm. and um, and it was all Aboriginal territory. So of course they would be fighting with Aboriginals. So that that makes sense as well. Mm-hmm. But um, then I started looking into, um, you know, like he was the ruler of the whole kingdom. Like, why would he be going with these farmer soldiers? Sing- single-handedly, <laughs> really really want to make sure that this pig farm is pulling its weight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if, if, you're, if you're a ruler of the whole kingdom, you probably wouldn't be doing that. So mm-hmm. some, some versions of the legends addressed this. They say he was there to boost the morale of his troops, mm-hmm. and then they got attacked. So, you well, know, you know, if you could make wellspring out of the ground, <laughs> I guess that was probably a good idea. Yeah, yeah. So, so... That that part's kind of covered, 
There's it's no historical accuracy, but it mm-hmm. it is explained. So I decided to look at the dates. So mm-hmm. uh, I used this lunar calendar t- converter tool mm-hmm. online, and I found that Dragon Boat Festival in 1662, which is supposedly when the event happened, mm-hmm. took place on June 20th, mm-hmm. and Zhen Chenggong. Uh, historical date of death is June 23rd. So he died three days after he created this well. At a location that's pretty far from... From Tainan. And he's Mm -hmm. known to have died in Tainan. Mm -hmm. So then I checked a bunch of sources. Like most biographies on his life say he suddenly fell ill during the fifth month of the lunar calendar Mm. of that year. Mm -hmm. And then I did that conversion again and that came out to be june 15th mm. so and then they say he was sick for a week and he's just died unexpectedly so so he was already sick in tainan by june 15th yeah so there's no way he's going up and checking on his hog farmers up in miaoli yeah on june 20th on june 20th yeah so i deduce that it probably there's something fishy yeah. going on. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. It couldn't. It couldn't be the fact that uh, they all said that this water is water that can stay good for a whole year, and maybe maybe that's why. Uh, maybe that's what took him down. Who knows? Maybe they were wrong about that. <laughs> maybe that, that's possible. <laughs> uh, interesting. Okay, so what would you say is has been the significance of this legend going down through uh, you know the, the hundreds of years that it's been around? I mean, is this just a, a source of local pride, or or is there more to it? It's part of like this guy's legacy and like mm-hmm. how he's still worshipped in some places right. around the, the country and like mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it's kind of just an interesting twist on a legend, part of a legend that you mm-hmm. know it's it's very localized. Like there's right. So he means something different to people in different places. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Like in uh, yeah, and for 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 the people of Daja, it was just yeah, he was there and they had this well and then. Um, but apparently it was pretty uh, important because the government actually like uh, renovated the well in like the 1950s and mm. they gave it the name Sword Well. And before it was called Guoxing Well because Zheng had the, that means uh, Well of the Imperial Surname because Zheng had, uh, he was granted the Ming Dynasty Imperial Surname by the emperor. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's just, uh, it's more of like, just breaking from like the general mm-hmm. myths and legends and kind of looking at the more localized uh, legends and having fun with it. Like, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a way for people to, you know, relate to history in a very localized kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, and if people want to visit that well, they can just do that? Yeah, they could, they could just do that. It's, uh, it's part of like this, it's on a mountain. There, there are buses that go up there and mm. it's, it's part of this like park. So there's like, uh, there's some hiking. There's other things to do around there, and they can visit the well. I don't know how powerful this water is, like <laughs> on days other than Dragon Boat mm. Festival. But mm. I mean, you're welcome to try it. And that, well, we can we can expect a part two on this series next year. And yeah, you, you look into. Uh, well, I guess that would be a different column. That's not really a historical question. That's a. Uh, uh, either uh, maybe maybe chemistry is what yeah, we need. Yeah, it could a, be chemistry. chemistry we could we could take some water and analyze it and see like, <laughs> and, and then try to disprove its healing properties. There but, we go. That's yeah. your next project. Yeah. Uh, all right. So to round things out uh, very quickly, uh, you also uh, had an article that uh, came out just yesterday. Tell us a little bit about uh, what people can find in the Taipei Times from yesterday. 
Um, yeah. So yesterday I wrote about uh, the. Kind of aerial battles that took place between the communist China and uh, Taiwan over the Taiwan Strait, like mm. during, because uh, on July fifth there was one incident where Taiwan was able to shoot down five um, People's Liberation Army MiG fighters. So mm. I'm kind of using that to as a springboard to go into like the general kind of what happened, like all, all these like. Aerial battles and what happened between the strait during the times where tension was high and there was actually fighting going on between the two sides of the strait. Mm. All right, so you can find that in uh, the July third of uh, the Taipei Times, either online or the print edition.、Uh, we've been speaking to Han Chung about his column Taiwan in Time.、Uh, Han, talk to you again next month. All right, talk to you soon. All right, you can find his column Taiwan in Time every Sunday in the features section of the Taipei Times.、Uh, we will be getting another Taiwan history snapshot from him next month. For your browsing convenience, I have put together、uh, links for all the articles we discussed today, right on the ICRT blog.、Uh, you can find the page for this episode in the Taiwan Talk section of the blog. Follow those links to、uh, take an even deeper dive into the history that we've been discussing today. Uh, and while you're there, please do leave a comment. Would always love to hear what you have to say. All right, so we're going to have to wrap things up for today for Taiwan Talk and ICRT. I'm Keith Manconi. See you next time.